First reading tonight is Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Our second reading today is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 11. What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is in Jesus Christ. This is God's word. If you haven't met me, I'm Simon, one of the ministers here, and uh, I make it 7.06, which means this time next week, some of you will be in pubs and restaurants uh, down the road thinking, this is brilliant. I've already been to church. That was brilliant. And now I'm eating. This is brilliant. I now know whether to eat before or after the service. That's fantastic. Loving it. Some of you will be uh, just getting into the seven o'clock service thinking, this is brilliant. I'm quite hungry. What am I going to do? Um, it's all about to happen. Uh, and so tonight is the last in our little series called Old Truths, New Ambitions, because we want to be a church that, that does those two things, that sticks to the old truths but moves ahead with new ambitions based on those old truths. Uh, I've heard it described as having one closed hand and one open hand. We have one hand that is closed on unchanging truth, the things that God has said permanently, that we must cling to tightly and never let go. And the other hand is open on just about everything else, uh, where the Bible allows for choice and creativity in matters of culture and, and taste and so on. We want to be free to move and adapt to changing times. We want to have new ambitions Could we change things for the better in order to to reach London and the world for Christ more effectively? So tonight, the final old truth that we're looking at in this series, sort of a a principle that we want to cling to with, it was that hand, wasn't it? With a, a closed hand, and it's depending on God in prayer. So let's pray as we look at Psalm 127 together. Father, please, as we look at this, wonderful and ancient song in your word. Please, would it become a song in our hearts? Would it be embedded deep within us so that we, like the psalmist, would be humbled 
would be led to you again, to depend on you, to know that without you, all endeavor is useless, and yet with you, great blessing can result. Please convince us of that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we need to depend on God in prayer. In fact, uh, the, the title in the term card for this evening is Beseeching the Lord. Beseeching is a fantastic old word. You don't really hear it very much these days except in period dramas. Uh, or if you grew up in a church that still uses the old uh, 17th century liturgy, uh, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, if you did, you'll have said, we beseech thee or we humbly beseech thee over and over and over again. And I think it's a shame, having looked into this a bit, that the word beseech is disappearing from our language. Because uh, it's very expressive, evocative. Uh, we usually talk about asking, requesting, uh, praying to God for things. If you look up beseech, it captures urgency, total dependence. It means to implore somebody, to beg, to plead with God. Do you beseech? In other words, do you come to God in prayer uh, with a sense of your utter powerlessness and his complete sufficiency? Beseech is right. We, we come to him who has everything as those who have nothing. We express in prayer just how much we depend on him. Let me say, if you don't feel that sense of dependence, you're not likely to pray. We often get that wrong. We, we, as Christians, if we read the Bible, we know that we ought to pray. Uh, we feel guilty for not praying, so maybe we plan to pray. And we do lots of practical things, perhaps. Prayer diary, set our alarm a bit earlier, try and pray. Good ideas. But maybe the problem is deeper than that. Maybe deep down, at times, you and I think we don't need to pray. And basically, that's why we struggle. And as a church, making plans, trying new things putting these new ambitions into practice, if we don't beseech the Lord, if we don't get down on our knees and plead with him, then it shows that we don't think we need him. And that would be a disaster. So let's get into Psalm 127, which makes our dependence on him very, very obvious. Uh, those words in, at the beginning of verse 1 are famous and sobering and haunting words. Unless the Lord builds the house... Its builders labor in vain. Those are words that need to be burned into us uh, as we embark on a year of new things. Memorize that line. Store it up in your mind. Let it become a, a motto, a catchphrase. Say to yourself time and time again, repeat, 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 until you realize, I need to pray. Unless the Lord builds, it's useless. Let me say Psalm 127 isn't explicitly about prayer, but it is all about our total reliance on God. And that's the most essential thing to understand if we are going to pray. So prayer is going to be one of the crucial applications we make from this. Just by way of context, you can see uh, in that little line at the top, as part of the original, that uh, it was written by Solomon, who was king of Israel in about 950 BC. And it's a song of ascent. One of about 15 psalms grouped here with the same title, Songs of Ascent. And uh, the ascent was the journey up to Jerusalem. When people scattered from, from miles around would gather in Jerusalem for a great festival. The ascent was their journey there to Jerusalem, to the temple. And as they went on their way, 
uh, going up to the temple or the house that Solomon himself was responsible for building. This song was designed to embed in their hearts that everything was vain. Their temple, their festivals, their journey, their intentions, their plans, their hard work, everything in vain, unless, unless God was at work. So let's look at this song. It draws just one simple contrast. And the two headings on your handout uh, are what we're going to go through. The vanity of relying on ourselves and the blessing of relying on the Lord. Those are our choices as we get into 2014, as we try and put our plans into action. So first, the vanity of relying on ourselves. That repeated word that echoes through those first few verses is vain, vain. Without God, the builders build in vain. The watchmen watch in vain. You rise early in vain. You stay up late in vain. You toil for food in vain. You could translate it uh, useless, pointless, futile, empty, hollow, void, worthless. The old Latin Bible used to say frustra, frustration. Nobody wants to live like that. This time next year, do you want to be asked, how was last year? And to be able to, to just sort of think and think, well, vain, pointless, frustrating. Everything I did was in vain. Nobody wants to live like that. And the psalmist takes a few examples in order to show you how this applies to every sphere of life. First one, are you building something? Biblically, the word house can refer to a, a literal building, a house that you live in, uh, or the temple that Solomon built, uh, or metaphorically to a, a family, or later in the New Testament to uh, the church in a particular place. It is useless to embark on a project, to launch a new enterprise, Unless God is building. Or verse 1, again, if you are guarding something, are you trying to protect something, watching over a city? Again, city was a very flexible word. Anything from the the big metropolis of Jerusalem to uh, the tiniest little hamlet where uh, just one family might live. The same word city was used for all of those. It is useless to try and guard or protect something. Your church, your livelihood, your family, your friends, your possession, your career unless God is watching over. And verse 3, uh, the psalmist moves from uh, the public sphere to the private sphere with this lengthy example of a family with children. Now remember, house could refer to a building or to a family. Also the word for builders and sons in Hebrew is almost identical. So this isn't a, a sort of separate thought at the end of the psalm about families and children. I'll say more about those verses in, in a moment, but The basic point is clear. In whatever sphere of life you consider, you cannot truly succeed without God. All you do will be in vain. Now we read this and our egos are suffering. But according to this psalm, you can do your best to build your life, make yourself wealthy, successful, respected, become brilliant, And apart from God, all of it's in vain. We can build the biggest building. The building up there won't be the biggest when the balcony finally has a a building on it. I hope we have success with that. We can develop the most fabulous city here in London. We can have the most famous and successful family in all the world. But apart from God, it's in vain. It might look fantastic, but it's all 
just external. Now this is, a, in many ways, a sad, lonely picture. Does this describe you at times? In verse uh, 3, somebody slogging their guts out, getting up in the small hours, slaving away, burning the midnight oil the other end of the day, living life in a desperate attempt to achieve, to accomplish, to do something that is not in vain, whether building or protecting or starting uh, something or feeding a family, and feeling alone and helpless as if everything depends on you. It's your energy that counts. It's your strength, your reliability, your ingenuity. And there's nothing else but you, so you better just get on with it. Is that how you feel at times? Trying to do life without God. Constantly fearful that what you're building will collapse or what you're trying to protect will be taken away or destroyed. So in verse 2, there's very little sleep. Certainly not very sound sleep for the person who lives life that way. Don't mishear me. It's not that early mornings and late nights are always a bad thing. The Bible has lots of criticisms of the lazy uh, or the sluggard, especially in the book of Proverbs, uh, who loves to endlessly lie in. Uh, And we need to be real about this. Uh, But we have different temperaments, different capacities for how much sleep is healthy for each of us, different patterns, different working styles. There's no universal rule for when we should start work, when we should knock off. And seasons of life come and go. Uh, work projects might mean less sleep for a time, then more sleep in compensation maybe one day. And that might be okay for a bit. Talk to a new mother. Try telling her that she's ungodly for not getting enough sleep. These things, you've got to be human about it. Uh, new parents have to just trust that eventually those times pass and one day sleep will be possible again. But with all of that in place... There's a big difference between working hard and trusting the Lord as we work hard. Did you know the word workaholic was uh, coined by a Christian minister? Uh, 1968, the Reverend Wayne Oates, uh, who was also a trained psychologist, was uh, trying to look after one of his congregation members. uh, And this guy seemed to be addicted to his work in a rather unhealthy way. And suddenly it dawned on the good Reverend Oates that he personally suffered from precisely the same thing. And he uh, wrote a little paper called Confessions of a Workaholic. And that was apparently the very first time the word was used. And uh, the Reverend admitted that his uh, five-year-old son had once come to him and asked for an appointment to see him. And when the guy died... uh, uh, in 1999, not the son, the, yeah, the dad, he'd written 57 books, so it sounds like he was never cured. Uh, but Oates wrote that the fear of death lies behind much of our workaholism and our excessive work habits. And that a workaholic is, to quote him, a person whose need for work has become so excessive that it creates noticeable disturbances or interference with his bodily health, personal happiness, and interpersonal relations, and with his smooth social functioning. I don't know about you. Uh, I relate to a bit of that at times. I'm proud to say. Actually, I'm not proud at all. Um, like many here, I suffer from both laziness on one end of the scale and workaholism at the other end of the scale, and they bizarrely 
mix as days go by. Uh, but often we are proud. We talk to one another and say, how are you? And uh, if the answer is not fine, then generally it's busy, tired, exhausted, working hard, not sleeping that well. And the other person just thinks, okay, that's normal, just like me, good. And we sort of wear it as a badge of honor, not seeing the, the damage that that can do to ourselves and to each other. Or at the very least, uh, we can take pride in being self-reliant and self, self-sufficient, a self-made person, we, we love to call ourselves. Of course, there's an element of nobility in taking responsibility for ourselves and having godly ambitions, but we, we slip into imagining that we don't really need the Lord, even that he might, in a weird way, approve of us trying to get on with life without him. There was a survey in the U.S. a couple of years ago that suggests that 75% of people there think that God helps those who help themselves is a verse in the Bible. It's not. That's a scary survey, not just because of how many people are misunderstanding and misquoting the Bible, but also because of what it potentially suggests about the vanity of people's lives thinking that God approves of them trying to do without him. Unless the Lord builds, says Psalm 127, it is in vain. Let's look for a moment at this example of family and children in in verses 3 to 5. I know for almost everyone at the evening service, by definition, this is not necessarily a direct application. We'd say much more if we were talking about this in the morning service. Let me make an obvious point, though. If children are, in verse 3, the Lord's to give, uh, his blessing, his reward, his heritage to give, then they are not ultimately ours. We can't congratulate ourselves for them. Whether we have a family or not is ultimately in God's control. Some long to be married so they can have children. Others get married and then discover they can't. I've known some who seem to be able to have as many children as they like, whenever they like, and you wonder if they've figured out how it keeps happening. Uh, And then others who have sort of one or two and then find they can't have any more. Or others, uh, very good friends of ours, tried for years and years and years and couldn't. And then suddenly uh, they just had their third last week. It's bizarre. So building a family isn't ultimately in our hands. We don't know which of those things might happen to us. And when you have a family, guarding them becomes a priority. But again, we do our part. But the future mapped out for our children isn't entirely in our hands. It is God's choice, not ours. And reminders of that can be quite scary. Uh, Just on Wednesday this week, um, Erin, our our nine-month-old, managed to swallow a little bit of plastic film that got lodged in the back of her throat. And she choked for a little bit, and then it went further in, and she could breathe, and that was fine. But uh, a quick trip to the A&E, um, uh, during which, uh, sitting in the hospital, my wife, Tree, spotted the end of the bit of plastic and dived in, pulled it out. <laughs> oh, well, we're okay. Let's go home. Um, phew, panic over. Um, but things like that, just they leave you humbled at the possibilities and 
how little in control of things we often are. Parenting is full of uncertainty. Of course, as parents, we will now adjust our watchfulness of Erin taking into account her superpowers of crawling at 100 miles an hour and the new dexterity we didn't know she had in her fingers and things like that. But nobody really knows whether their children will grow up, become arrows in a quiver, as these, uh, these verses describe them. And even then... Uh, A wise author from the 17th century that I saw quoted on this, uh, called Henry Smith, said, Children are wisely here called arrows, for if they they be well-bred, they shoot at their parents' enemies, and if they be poorly bred, they shoot at their parents. (laughs) In vain we, we try to build or guard our family unless the Lord builds or guards for us. In vain we do all of these things, build, guard, work for a living. So can can you look at your life and the things that you do, the work that you partake in, and say about your own activities, Lord, unless you prosper this project that I'm working on, or these studies that I'm doing, or this research, then then my work's going to be in vain. Lord, unless you teach the class, all my preparation, all my teaching will be in vain. In church, unless you guide our small group, then my contributions, my leadership of the group maybe, will be in vain. For me tonight, as I speak to you, Lord, unless you implant this sermon in my heart and in all of our hearts, then my preparation, my speaking will be in vain. So as we go to our three congregations, unless God is building and guarding, everything we do will be futile. Useless. In vain. Now that might mean that things visibly go belly up. Uh, numbers could shrink. There could be a, a financial black hole that we can't get out of. Key people fall ill. We might get chucked out of the building. Uh, London sinks into the Thames. I mean, the possibilities multiply. Any of those could happen. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean visible disaster, though. We might seemingly do very well from some perspectives. Maybe in two years' time, all the services will be bursting at the seams with with happy people, as Matt said. Church makes you happy. Not Matt, the newspaper said. Um, If Jesus is forgotten, we've just become a a sort of inward, self-serving club. Uh, A bunch of like-minded people having fun who happen to call themselves a church. And if that's the case, it doesn't matter how hard we work, doesn't matter how much we sacrifice doesn't matter how correct in theory all of our decisions are, uh, how excited or keen or generous or wise or friendly or loving or servant-hearted we are as a congregation. Unless God works, it will all be useless. Are you afraid of that? Because I think we should be about our plans as a church and about the rest of life. Back in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, many will know of him, he... uh, led a, uh, a very big church in, a, in South London. He wrote down a daydream that he had after reading these verses. And he, he wrote this. I was in a castle, and around its massive walls, uh, there ran a deep moat, and watchmen paced the walls both day and night. It was a fine old fortress, bidding defiance to the foe. But I was not happy in it. I thought I lay upon a couch, 
But scarcely had I closed my eyes, ere a trumpet blew, to arms, to arms. And then when the danger was past, I lay down again. To arms, to arms, once more resounded, and again I started up. Never could I rest. I thought I had my armour on, and, and I moved around perpetually clad in mail, uh, rushing each hour to the castle top, aroused by some fresh alarm. At one time, uh, a foe was coming from the west, at another from the east. I thought I had a, a, a treasure deep down somewhere in the, a deep part of the castle, and all my care was to guard it. I dreaded, I, I feared, I trembled lest it should be taken from me. And he says, I awoke, and I thought, I would not live in such a tower for all its grandeur. It was the castle of discontent, the castle of vain ambition, in which man never rests. Sleep never crossed the drawbridge of the castle of discontent. Don't live like that. Look at the wonderful alternative to that that we see in this psalm. Our second heading, the blessing of relying on the Lord. Before we get there, Spurgeon hated his daydream so much that he decided to deliberately dream up a different scenario. And he says, I was in a cottage. It was in what poets call a beautiful and pleasant place, but I cared not for that. I had no treasure in the world save one sparkling jewel on my chest. And I put my hand on that and went to sleep, and nor did I wake till morning light. And that treasure was a quiet conscience and the love of God, the peace that passeth all understanding. I slept, he says, because I slept in the house of content, satisfied with what I had. Go, he says, ye overreaching misers. Go, ye grasping, ambitious men. I envy not your life of inquietude. The sleep of the miser is never hearty. But God giveth by contentment his beloved sleep. Beautiful picture from Spurgeon. Okay, Spurgeon, that sounds lovely. We want it, but what are you getting at when you talk about this sweet sleep and quiet conscience and contentment and satisfaction? What does relying on God do to produce those blessings? Well, I want to look at, uh, closely again at Psalm 127 and answer these two questions. When we rely on the Lord, what does the Lord contribute? And what do we contribute? Those two questions. What does the Lord contribute and what do we contribute? First, the Lord. Well, he works, that is for sure. He is the one who is able to build our house, to guard our city, to prosper our work, to raise a family. He can do all of that. Never, ever place limits on what you think God can and can't do. Ephesians 3 uh, verse 20 puts it like this. God is able to do more than all we could ask or imagine, immeasurably more. If God chooses to make our three services a growing, stunning success... He can. But maybe you wonder, how do we know whether God will do that or not? How do we know whether he will build or not? And the answer is, it's not simple. (laughs) Sometimes it's obvious that God will not be in something or building something. God is not in any venture that goes against biblical teaching. Uh, If one of us uh, in our life pursues the building of a beautiful home or an amazing career 
And we do that at the expense of our marriage, for example. God will not be in that. If somebody pursues a desired relationship that will tear them away from the Lord, God will not be in that. If we desire uh, a growing, vibrant church, as we said, but do that as, at the expense of the truth, God will not be in that. And God knows our motives. He judges the heart as well as the externals. God is unlikely to want to build with us if we do the right things, but for selfish reasons. But that said, here's where it gets more complicated. At other times, it's really not obvious why God may choose to bless certain initiatives and not others. As far as we can tell, we might be doing the right thing. As far as we can tell, we might be doing it for the right reasons. But God, for his reasons, which are private to him sometimes, God may choose to withhold his blessings from a particular venture. He might choose to prevent what seems to us to be a very, very good thing. A job we'd love to have, a place we'd love to to live, a relationship with a particular person, or children that we'd love to have. And we don't know why, and that can be very perplexing, sometimes deeply upsetting to us. But if something doesn't work out, even though we worked for it, trusting God with wisdom and integrity, then we can be confident of this. God knows a reason. Maybe hidden from us until we see him in glory and can talk to him face to face about it. God knows a reason why it, it wouldn't have been a good idea. At least not right now. As Romans chapter 8 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. He is in all things working for our good if we love him. But only he has a perfect understanding of what is for our good. Look at the end of verse 2, though. Those who rely on the Lord are those he loves. That is something we can take hold of and know to be forever true if we trust in him. He loves us if we're those who trust in him. He works in your life because he loves you. We won't get God to act by being anxious about it or or worrying about something or creating a brilliant strategy that forces him to get involved. That is not how it works. He works because he loves us. So like Spurgeon, we can rest in God's love and we can look to the future saying, well, if we succeed, then that is God. If we fail from our perspective then if we're trusting in Jesus, we can still know that God loves us and that for his good and maybe secret reasons, it wasn't his will for us to succeed. So that's what we contribute. What God contributes, my apologies. Uh, In his love, he works for our good. And if he so chooses, according to his perfect understanding of all things, he can and he will bless the work of our hands. That's God's contribution. What do we contribute? Well, we work as well. Uh, Did you notice that? It's not that uh, we work and God does nothing, but also it's not that God works and, and we do nothing. Our new services are guaranteed to fail if we do nothing. I hope that's obvious. Uh, 
In Psalm 127, the builders still build, the watchmen still watch, the workers still work, the parents still presumably make babies in the usual way. But God is the one who is at work. But it's not symmetrical. It's not that we get into partnership with God and we're sort of on an equal footing or anything like an equal footing. Everything ultimately comes from God. Without him, we can contribute nothing. With him, we can work. We can take part to the extent that he chooses, that he enables. When I take uh, Joel, our four-year-old, to the playground, after a while, he'll probably say, Daddy, can I go on the seesaw? And at that point, I look around hoping that there's another child of a similar age and size to Joel, because if not, it's me and him. And uh, on we get. And uh, I've no idea how many times heavier, heavier I am than Joel. Uh, but trust me, he may think he's contributing serious effort whenever he bounces off the floor. Uh, but believe me, it makes no difference at all. And when I hit the ground pretty hard, I have to put all the work in to get the thing going. And if I didn't push up with my legs every time uh, my end hits the ground, he, he would go nowhere. That's something of it. We work, but only as God enables. And then what? Well, verse 2, we sleep. Verse 2 says, the Lord grants sleep to those that he loves. You could equally translate it, while they sleep, he provides for those that he loves. Roughly speaking, we spend about a third of our lives asleep. May not be true at the moment. You sort of do the mental calculation, but you'll probably make up for it in old age. I don't know. Ever wondered why God made us like that, though? Occasionally, some of us try to ignore that built-in feature of our lives. It doesn't go well. Sleep is very humbling. Suddenly, every single night, we become blind, helpless, unconscious, weak, defenseless, often Wake up from it as blithering idiots with limbs that don't work properly. Sleep is a a message to you and me. Trust God. Rely on him. We need him, but he doesn't need us. He will be at work as we sleep. Reverend Oates, that workaholic minister, said that for him, taking time to rest and play was a major spiritual discovery. Maybe some of us need to find that discovery too. Sometimes the most godly thing that you can do is take a break or go on holiday or go to bed at a decent hour. And those who know me, keep quiet. (laughs) Do you see how liberating this psalm is? As we move to, to three services, we'll do our best. We'll give ourselves to the work, I hope. But I hope we'll also take proper sleep and trust God for the outcome, while we rest in his love. That is the blessing of relying on God. If we fail by human standards, having served faithfully, we can trust God to be making the right choices. And if we succeed and please God, we beseech God that we would succeed, then it's all thanks to him and all praise will go to him. Three very quick And brief things in response. Repent, trust, pray. Repent of whatever self-reliant vanity you can see in your own life. It could be in your workplace, your relationships here at church. 
repent of your constant need that, that, that we all by instinct have to take things into your own hands, to control things because God doesn't seem to be giving you what you want. Some might need to repent from a similar but flip side temptation to despair as if life living for God was in vain. That is not true. So repent of self-reliance and trust. Trust that God loves you. Come what may, if you are trusting in Jesus. Trust that he can and will be at work in all things for your good if you love him. And trust him to be at work with us as he chooses because he knows much more than we do. Trust his decisions. Trust him to bless what he chooses to bless in the work that we undertake for him. And then pray. Let's pray. Uh, Let's apply this psalm uh, to our hearts. Realize our absolute dependence on him. And let's pray. Maybe beseech is getting too antiquated. But maybe we should use the language of beg or implore or plead. Let this psalm remind you of your utter dependence on God. and, And let that drive you to your knees. Whether you're heading for the five or the seven next week. Unless the Lord builds the house of that service, you'll be laboring in vain. So please pray. 7 p.m.ers, do come across to the office after the service tonight uh, for a prayer meeting. 5 p.m.ers, do pray with one another. But don't stop once those services begin. Keep praying for the work. So those are our two choices given to us in this psalm. The castle of despair living a vain life of relying on myself, or the cottage of contentment, living a blessed life of relying on God. And I know where I'd rather be. How about you? Let's pray. Lord, how we need you. We are nothing without you. And we have our ideas and our plans. And we pray that they're good ones. And we're doing our best, we think, to make them good ones, faithful ones to scripture. But unless you build with us, unless you watch with us, it'll be pointless, vain, futile. So Lord, as Christchurch Mayfair, we beg you to build. We beg you to watch over And please, Lord, in your sovereign goodness, your generosity to us, your fatherly love towards us, would you continue using this church for your glory? Would you grow the work here? How we long to be part of you reaching the nations, reaching London for Christ. Please, Father, use us for you. In Jesus' name, amen.